Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're talking deer on this beautiful, stormy Wednesday in Alabama. And uh, I got Jacob Myers here with me. Jacob, how are you doing over there? Oh, doing well, man. Listen, well, by the time you're hearing my voice now, I'll be on the road going to North Carolina, which is actually where our guest is coming in from today. So so today we got uh, Mr. Mariah Bogus on. Mariah, how are you doing? I'm doing super well. Awesome. So... Uh, I don't think we've had you on before, uh, so can you give us a, a little introduction of yourself, kind of your background, uh, and what you do for a living? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, my name is Mariah from North Carolina. Uh, I'm a, a wildlife biologist. Grew up here, uh, went to school here, ended up going down to Mississippi State University for my master's work. I'm a deer nut, and that's always been my focus um, since I graduated. I Worked in Indiana for a short spell, state deer biologist there, and now I'm in North Carolina, my home state, working for the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. 
as the deer biologist here. And, and that's what I do uh, by day. That's my job. And if I'm not working, I'm usually out in the woods, either deer hunting or, or trying to find a shed or, or thinking about them nonetheless. So this is a, a fun subject for me to talk about. I'm looking forward to it. So jumping into it, I, I got to ask real quick. So state deer biologist, what does that job entail? I mean, what do you do uh, as a oh, state man. deer biologist? Oh, a little bit of everything uh, related to deer. You, you, you know, you can think of it. Uh, I deal with it. Um, of course, spend a lot of time looking at harvest populations. Um, so population indices and, and of course, uh, how we adjust harvest in relation to that and, and seasons and regulations. Um, of course, I don't, I don't make those decisions. I am um, one of, of several biologists that have input and at least provide um, scientific guidance to the decision makers for, for what happens um, regulatory wise. So that's a big focus of my uh, my job here, my title. Then the other side is the biological side, and that is uh, right now a lot of CWD work, uh, chronic waste disease surveillance, and um, you know, and, and just any type of deer disease work. So hemorrhagic disease surveillance statewide, coordinating that program across the state. Um, as a statewide biologist, of course, I don't do a lot in the field, as you can imagine. Um, I end up driving a desk most days. Um, kind of coordinating our, our deer program work across the state. But yeah, I mean, if, if it involves deer, um, I, I, I am involved with it in some way uh, fact or fashion here in, in the state. And, and I really like it that way. I, I love deer. I love getting to, you know, be able to wake up every morning and think about deer all day for work. And then, you know, I, I usually end up carrying that into the evening if I'm out, out in the woods. So it's a good gig for someone like me. Well, Mariah, we got to dive into this because if anyone read the, the title of this episode, you know, we're talking all things, you know, shed hunting and especially like Southern shed hunting, you know, with you coming, coming in from North Carolina, which I, of course is still going to count to me as the Southeast, uh, you might classify it a little bit differently uh, when it comes to your, your profession, but just that kind of audience uh, that listens to our podcast and also just the region, you know, it seems like shed hunting is such a huge passion of yours after following you, along with you for probably... I don't know, probably have, have known you or, or, of course, known of you for at least four years now. And uh, this it seems like that's always been a part. And you're the one guy I've ever seen that literally picks up, takes vacation time or gets time off work to literally, like, let's go shed hunt somewhere or a couple different states across the southeast. And I think, I don't know if it was last year or two years ago, I remember you went through, I forgot how many states, and uh, picked up pretty much a carload of sheds, uh, which, again, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, that kind of journey on this too, but... Just real quick, I've got to ask, you know, when it comes to shed hunting, is that something that's always been like a, like a, something that fixates your, uh, I guess, you know, imagination or kind of like your attention is in shed hunting? Or is that something that's, you know, been a, a factor for you since you were very young? Or is that something that came along maybe a little bit more in your actual kind of career path uh, as a state biologist? No, it, it's, it's honestly been there right from the beginning. I, um, I'm an ad, or, you know, real, real big deer hunter. Uh, I love the deer hunt, but I'm actually a bigger shed hunter. And, uh, and that's not by accident. I, I grew up in a non-hunting family. We went fishing a lot, grew up in the country, but I had no one in my family or, or really anyone around me, um, for the most part that hunted. And, uh, at a young age, I actually found a shed antler accidentally. Um, and, and then very quickly kind of did some research and learned that deer shed antler, this is right around the time I was about nine years old. 
and uh, started poking around a little bit in the same briar patch and found a couple more antlers and I was just hooked, you know, at that young age. And I, I spent the next uh, several years, really until I, I got into college, uh, shed hunting some of these small properties I had permission to hunt. And looking back, I would never now spend any time shed hunting there because the deer weren't wintering there. But nonetheless, I would I would scour the whole you know acres that I had, which wasn't much, and and I didn't have much luck those early years. Um, I just had I would find one or two sheds a year, and uh, but I was just ate up with it, and and I took up deer hunting shortly thereafter, and was kind of self-taught there, um, and I'm just absolutely in love with it, and have, have been a big deer hunter ever since. But I when it comes to deer, and everyone knows I'm I'm crazy about deer, but I was I always tell folks that you know shed hunting is kind of my first love when it comes to that you know the hunting woods and everything and so I'd say it's it's every bit as part of me as, as anything else and um, it really just it really just catches me I don't know something about it but it's the it's the ability to walk through the woods without really carrying your mind um, and turn at any given whim you know if you're walking along and the grass looks a little bit greener over the next hill or in the next draw. You can you can just walk over there, and it doesn't really matter because you don't have a destination in mind. And uh, if you open up your your mind a little to a little bit of uh, open open thinking and and just kind of take any turn that feels good to you, you end up in some some pretty cool spots. You know, exploratory wise, as far as out in the woods, you can you can come across some some cool stuff you never otherwise see. Um, but oftentimes, when you follow those gut feelings you end up finding sheds and so um it's kind of a combination of all of that and i feel like it i've really become attached to the landscape that i'm shed hunting and and i learn the animals and their behaviors the most when i'm shed hunting so it's it's really just the best like unplug kind of activity for me and i i've always loved it absolutely and i, I want to bring up you know a, a probably a month or so ago we did an episode uh with uh, two gentlemen who's been on the podcast before nathan killian and Rusty Johnson, and we did a shed hunting episode specifically about like the mountains, both from Nathan coming from the Appalachian Mountains up in Virginia and Rusty coming from the Ozark Mountains in northwest Arkansas and kind of how they would, you know, cover again, tens of you know miles to just find these sheds. And a lot of times it was truly just a numbers game, you know, boots on the ground to be successful. But one thing I want to ask you, because you just have so much success, I mean, strategically going out there. And I mean, doing trips to shed hunt, uh, like again, outside of your home states, do you feel like, is there anything that like kind of puts the odds more in your favor when you understand deer biology and kind of those wintering grounds to have like higher odds success shed trips than just walk out in the woods randomly just to go look for deer antlers? You know, um, when I first got into the wildlife field, I kind of hoped that they were, you'd learn, you know, I'd learn some kind of edge or something like that. And. I gotta say, I, I really don't think so. I I think shed hunting and just like deer hunting, uh, the best skill you can develop is just really strong observational skills and tucking away little facts and um, little observations in your mind and kind of moving forward and, and cataloging those away and connecting the dots. Um, so I, I will say this, probably the, I mean, so so there's that, and then anyone can have that and develop that, and there's a lot of folks out there that that have better observational skills than I do. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm the best deer hunter out there. I'm definitely not the best shed hunter. I, you know, I struggle at times. Um, you know, the only thing I do that, that might be different than other folks is if I, you know, if I'll see deer browsing some plant, especially in winter, um, because I'm 
at, at heart a deer nerd. I mean, if I see something like that, I'll go back to the computer and I'll, I'll search the, the scientific literature and, and see what I can find as far as uh, any kind of studies documenting deer eating that plant. And, you know, there's been a couple of instances like that that opened my eyes to winter food sources for deer um, that I had prior kind of written off. And after seeing deer eat those you know, seeing signs of deer eating it in the woods or maybe finding a dead deer with that in that stomach. Um, you know, I did a little bit more research and found out that scientists had, had documented that same diet item in, in you know, similar circumstances that, that I was in. But really, that's the only thing I can think of that, that I might do a little bit differently. And I, I wouldn't think that that's making a huge difference for me. Um, at the end of the day, it just comes down to putting in a lot of time and miles and, um, you know, and, and enjoying the, the time out there for what it is. It, so there, there's a lot here that I want to talk about, especially with you coming from like uh, the science schooling background, and also just your biologist background, uh, being a deer biologist is, is there anything, well, not, to, not to get too sidetracked because a bunch of different questions. One thing just right off the bat, cause I'm looking at one, well, I'm looking at one shed right, right now in front of me that Andrew found, actually there's two of them. And one of them, this deer lost, I don't know. Would you, Andrew, call it a pedicle? It's like he's missing. Yeah. He's like he's got like a extra half inch of pedicle where it broke off. I guess closer inside the skull or something, or the other one's yeah. just a clean. You know, this fell off cleanly. Is there anything you can tell about a deer's health or reasoning why that's the case? Because this is one of the first ones I've seen like that. To be honest, I've haven't held a bunch of sheds, but I mean, it looks gnarly. It looks like it was quite painful when that sucker came yeah. out. So, yeah. Well, so uh, so the, the you know the normal shed line. Um, that line that separates the antler from the skull is called the abscission line, and it forms over time. There's these specialized cells there called osteoclasts that form in mid to late winter, and they start pulling out mineral from that thin layer of bone between the skull and the antler. And when that process finalizes, the antler falls off, and that, that's the mechanism of antler shedding. Um, and so during that process, you know, that, that abscission line is becoming weaker and weaker. And once in a while, a deer will shed it and part of the pedicle will come with it. And I find a lot of sheds every year that have a little bit of pedicle attached. And for the most part, that's not a big issue for a deer. Um, if, it, if it was just, you know, something might have bumped it off and maybe it was far with another buck and it was, it was going to drop naturally within, you know, maybe a couple of hours or a day, it doesn't seem to cause a big issue. There might be a pinky sized piece of pedicle attached or a little bit more. But then when you find an antler that has more and more pedicle attached, that could be indicative of a bigger problem. And, and oftentimes when an antler sheds and it has a big chunk of pedicle attached, and uh, sometimes when this happens, there'll be some, some pus or blood or some kind of goo that, that might be a little smelly on that pedicle, that can be indicative of a cranial abscess. And cranial abscesses happen uh, in deer quite commonly. And it, it happens when there's a puncture in the skin, oftentimes from sparring, um, and this bacteria, it's a truparella that, that, that's in the weeds, but it's, it's a, this, this bacteria that's very common on the outside of deer makes its way underneath the skin, and it causes these abscesses. Um, you may have seen them in meat before where there's that green kind of key lime pie pus um, in a hindquart or something like that. That's that same bacteria that, that causes, in most cases, these cranial abscesses. And a buck can live for a long time with a cranial abscess like that. And uh, oftentimes they're very close to those pedicles. And when that happens, you can get a rough shed 
um, that will pop off like that. And and oftentimes when there's a cranial abscess that affects the pedicle, it 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 doesn't that infection doesn't go away. And so next year, uh, you know, after that shed, it's very common for that antler to be uh, abnormal or deformed or smaller. Um, and in general, that buck will be fine with that cranial abscess unless it develops into a brain abscess. And a, it, it develops into a brain abscess when it reaches the brain uh, inside the skull. And so um, that doesn't always happen, but when it does, usually the buck will die within a couple uh, within a couple of days. And it will it'll have um, some pretty serious outward symptoms. It'll be standing there, uh, not afraid of humans and so on. So um, so I guess yes and no to answer your question. It just it kind of depends on how severe of a piece of pedicle is attached. But it's again another cool thing you can learn from finding sheds. Interesting. Yeah, I was wondering if this buck was alive. I mean, because I mean, there's quite a bit. It seems like I'd it's, like it's to the, send you a picture. It's a huge. I'm just gonna say it. It's a big piece of pedicle. Uh, it looks. It's yeah. yeah. It's not when you said pea size. Andrew held it up. I'm like, no. Nah, it's like it looks like the so whole it's a chunk came out with it's it. It's a it's a chunk for sure. It's like the whole pedicle. Yeah. Uh, and okay. And so I found it interestingly uh, between two trees. So there was like a a a decent sized tree and a little sapling growing next to it, but about the size of like a baseball bat. And it was the shed was directly in between them, almost like he he like got his antler stuck between them or something like that, and maybe yanked it off somehow. I'm not real sure, but. Yeah, I, I'd like to send it to you and get you uh, get your opinion on that. But yeah, it's a it's a good shed. I mean, I'm assuming it's a younger buck, and uh, he's framed out. He looks nice. I'm like, man, I hope he I hope he sticks around. <laughs> this is a pretty good yeah. looking deer. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I've seen them sometimes that have shed, um, like the whole pedicle. One time, uh, one of my professors at Mississippi State had a, a set of antlers that um, a hunter had found down there, and in the whole pedicle was attached and even part of the brain cavity, like the smooth part of the, the underside of the skull that would be a, that would connect to the brain. So in other words, when that deer shed those antlers, there was holes exposing its brain. And, and a deer like that's going to die within you know hours to, day, to a day or so. Um, that's the most severe case, the most severe example. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to ask about when it comes to shed hunting in you know North Carolina, and I know you've done it in Mississippi and and probably a host of other uh, southeastern states as well, is uh, you know deer spend a lot of time in thickets around here, and I feel like that kind of makes it hard to shed hunt sometimes because I feel like what what we at least I guess this is maybe the excuse we give ourselves is like man there's a lot they, they drop their sheds in these pine thickets and there's just no getting in there and finding them really. Uh, without a dog or something like that. Uh, do you have any experience, you know, shed hunting in thickets or, or anything like that? I mean, and, and what's your opinion on that subject? Yeah, I, I might be the wrong person to ask because I've got a lot of experience shed hunting those and not much experience finding sheds in them, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, to your point, it, it's it's really tough. And um, when I was just getting into shed hunting, I, I, I would spend a lot of time in thick areas like that. And I found that, that in those years, I would look for the land cover type. So whether it was like a brushy old field or maybe a, a young um, regenerating clear cut or something like that, I would look for that type of cover on the landscape and gravitate toward it thinking, oh, there must be deer in it. Um, there must be bucks in it. And, um, and I don't approach it that way anymore. And I think that's why I spend less time in those types of areas. Uh, now I approach it solely from the food perspective. 
and uh, I try to nail down winter food sources and then uh, if time al allows I'll, I'll scout before shed season to figure out where there's bachelor groups but I don't spend as much time in those areas now um, just because I spend a lot more time prior to shed season these days looking for bachelor groups um, in, in trying to pinpoint where they are so because I do my homework ahead of time I end up having a lot of different spots to shed hunt and I you know, I might walk the edges of those thickets and heavy trails through them and if, if I can find bedding, but I'm not going to spend too much time there because I have somewhere else to go um, that would probably be better. Okay, that makes sense. No, that's a great answer. I mean, because, uh, I mean, walking around in the shed, I mean, unless I'm, unless I'm rabbit hunting or something, I'm probably just not busting through a, a big briar thicket looking for shed antlers or anything. And really, even in all the time I've spent rabbit hunting, which is quite a bit of time, uh, I still don't find very many sheds. I actually find more deadheads in those pine thickets than I do sheds. That's interesting, you know. And um, I guess at some point or another, I kind of arrived at the conclusion that it seemed to me that most, uh, you know, you hear these claims. People talk about this with fishing and hunting. You know, ninety percent of the woods aren't worth hunting or whatever. Ninety percent of the deer in ten percent of the woods, and so on. Um, and if that applies in hunting season, it applies. You know, you you could you can multiply that like tenfold during shed season. Because um, you think about late season hunting tactics, uh, the best late season hunting uh, tactic, at least in, in my eyes, is you find the food source and deer concentrate on food at that time, and you just figure out where the food source is, and they're usually pretty close to it, bedded. Um, and the same applies in shed season. And again, you know, it, it even stronger. Uh, because it's getting later in winter and deer are, are getting concentrated more and more as time goes on on those last good food sources. And um, and so it ends up being that, you know, you might have uh, a thousand acres to, to shed hunt, but honestly, there's probably only 15 or 20 that are really worth hitting, but you, you, you still got to figure out where those are. Um, and sometimes that takes a lot of walking to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to get into your thoughts on food sources and, and everything like that. But one just kind of, I guess, deer biology thing that's interesting is, you know, that, that late season time of year, I guess, up till right now, kind of getting into early spring. I mean, what do, what what is the biology of like a whitetail buck? I mean, what is he doing as far as getting back together with other bucks, uh, home range size? Like, how does that stuff change? It's kind of a general overview of kind of what they got going on this time of year. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so um, of course, right after the rut, a lot of bucks will be back in bachelor groups. Um, so, like where I'm at right here, I'm on the coast of North Carolina, about ten miles from the the coast. So, uh, our rut out here happens first week of November. Um, it's 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 past, you know, by by late November, it's pretty much over. So by uh, mid to late December, bucks were were showing up in bachelor groups pretty good again. Um, and then pretty much exclusively in bachelor groups by mid-January here. And from what I, what I found as far as just observations, shed hunting, I mean, uh, the, those bucks, you, you'll get, like, if you have a really good food source, you, you might have one, two, three different bachelor groups, and, and a lot of times there'll be different individuals in those bachelor groups, uh, all using the same food source. And I imagine that they are um, – they're using, or, or I'm sorry, they're they're bedding probably in different areas, and they're spending time together distinctly, you know, in different groups. But they're using the same common so um, 
the co same common resource there, that food. Uh, which is, I mean, it's, it's pretty in keeping with some of the deer research out there that shows um, sometimes you know, right after hunting season, bucks making large movements elsewhere. Um, you know, down in Mississippi State, that they've documented a lot of bucks that will make these types of movements where they will spend all of summer in one area and then leave to go elsewhere for hunting season or spend hunting season in one area. And as soon as it's over, that you know, those bucks leave and go elsewhere. And they have you know, effectively two different home ranges. And, um, and so what I found is that with some of these food sources, if, if you put in your due diligence and you really nail down where, where bucks are spending time, and, and I'll point out this can, this can change from year to year uh, in a big way, whether it's planted food or whether it's natural food, it can change. But, um, but deer find it, you know, of course, every year they'll find what, what food source is, is best. And, um, and what you'll see is you'll, you'll see a lot of bucks concentrated in there and you'll see a higher density of bucks, um, you know, and, and probably more mature bucks than you would expect if you were hunting there. And that's just because there's probably a lot of different buck home ranges that have shifted to use that late season, um, that, that late winter resource, um, because, you know, you're, you might be pulling in deer from five miles, uh, you know, 10 miles away, who knows? they're all responding to the food that's there just again depending on how heavy the draw is so so it's all about the food i want to get into some of those food sources uh late season earlier you kind of mentioned there were some that surprised you some that you hadn't thought about before can you dive into that about how these late season food sources are a little different maybe kind of name some off that people might recognize yeah so um I almost, so I always start at food, you know, that's, that's kind of the main clue. And then I'll work my way back from there and, into bedding, try to connect some of the other puzzles. But I, it always starts at food. And the, the low-hanging fruit, the obvious ones, of course, are if you're on an area with a food plot, um, a food plot's a good place to start. Now, you may not find any sheds in a food plot, and this is worth stressing. Um, and this goes for any of these food sources, especially the agricultural-type plantings like, like food plots or corn or beans. Just because you don't find a, an antler in a spot like that does not mean um, that you haven't stumbled on something good. So I, I pretty much always will start with the obvious ones, and the, and that's them. You know, look at food plots. Uh, I'll, I'll look for the grazing pressure in the food plots. Um, same with if there's pit corn fields or bean fields that I have access to. I will look for sign in those, and and I'll do this before you know, what, what I'll call shed season starts. So at least a month prior to when antlers are really going to start dropping. So here that's beginning of January, as soon as season ends, driving around to any food plots I have access to, getting out, making a quick loop around them. Um, and, and really all I'm doing is looking for deer droppings, tracks if I can see them, and sign that the deer are browsing the, the planting there. And I'll pretty quickly write off some food plots and, and I won't come back to them and other ones. If I think there's, if they're getting enough pressure, I'll come back to those and I might end up shed hunting those, you know, in, in earnest once sheds have dropped. Um, same goes for, for corn and beans, you know, whether, whether the, com the field's completely picked or whether there's some left standing, you know, if you're on a, a wildlife management area, um, those can be good places to start. And again, really looking for the sign within that food source. Um, and not, not just counting on finding sheds in it, but figuring out if, if there's deer concentrated on it. Those are the really obvious ones. 
Um, and I'll dive into the, to some a little bit less obvious ones. Um, one favorite of mine, and it, it's something that's kind of become uh, become a little bit obsessed with the subject and trying to learn more about it. Uh, and that is because it, it's constantly changing from year to year. And that's that's mass, you know, hard mass acorns, specifically red oak acorns. Um, in in really figuring out, and this is something I do through deer season automatically when I'm hunting. I'm I'm looking at different oak trees. I identify them by species and just make note of whether or not they they have acorns that year. Um, and and I and I hunt those pretty heavily myself in deer season. But I've had success shed hunting acorn ridges, uh, oak flats where deer are feeding heavily all the way through February and into March. Um, and then I found uh, actually last shed season one of my best sets I, I found all year. I actually found fresh land underneath some red oaks that I had I had hunted and I had been scouting and keeping up with and then ended up finding um, those antlers there. And uh, so that's, you know, not a non-traditional food source for deer, but um, maybe one that folks don't think about when it comes to late season. And uh, and again there, I, I when I'm scouting oaks, um, if I have an idea of what species are in different spots in the property, and whether or not they those trees dropped that fall, I'll know whether or not there's acorns on the ground, um, and whether or not I should go check out those trees when it comes to shed season. Uh, and if they are, what what I do is I'll just walk those those flats or those those ridges where there's um, acorns on the ground, and I I look for disturbance in the leaves, you know, leaves turned over, acorn have signs that are that deer have been in their feeding, um, and so just like just like you're hunting, you can kind of tuck that away if, if it's a couple weeks before sheds are going to drop and the, the deer are still heavy on acorns. You can bet that there's probably some bucks on on that food, um, and they might shed there or they might shed close by uh, if, if there's some bedding close by and, and they're, you know, have, if they have a real tight pattern on that food. Um, so that's one food source. And another one is uh, one that I just started really learning about this year and on the coast. Of course, we have a lot of waxy leaf species on the coast. Um, if you hunt anywhere in the in the coastal plain, you know there's there's a lot of them, um, especially in in upland pine stands. And I ended up killing a buck in December here. And when I right right before I shot him, I noticed that he was eating inkberry, um, also known as gallberry. And it's a really common shrub that grows in these longleaf pine stands and sometimes loblolly stands in, in the coastal plain and this stuff is everywhere and you know to most folks is that and to me up until that point i kind of written it off as really waxy leaf plant deer probably don't pay much attention to it but when i killed this buck he was eating it and so i you know being a little bit nosy and, and a deer nerd myself i cut open his room and when i was gunning him and it was full of of inkberry and gallberry and so i like I mentioned earlier, got on the computer, did some reading, and, and looked at some different literature from the southeast. And there's been a, a, many researchers in the coastal plain that have documented stomach contents of 40 up to you know, somewhere up to close to 50 percent of stomach contents of deer being gallberry, uh, which is something that just kind of struck me as not what I expected. Um, but anyway, I applied that in hunting season and ended up killing a couple more deer on that food source, and so. Um, that's something that I'm, I'm wanting to apply here in shed season. I haven't yet successfully done it because I'm waiting on a couple of stands. I know they're deer in 
and uh, they've got fire breaks around the stands right now. Um, it's, it's on you know a public area. They're getting ready to burn, and I'm and I'm just kind of waiting for them to burn it because that gold area is uh, waist high, you know, and, and there's there's a few hundred acres there that I know the deer are using the edges up pretty good. Um, and so that that one, I'm kind of waiting to for the payoff to see if if my hunch pays off and then I can find any sheds in, in that goldberry where I know those deer have been eating late season. Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master call and success call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com, use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. So one more thing I'll throw in there too. Another food source that I noticed last year, shed hunting up in Indiana. Um, I'd started at this cornfield, was kind of working my way back up into the timber because uh, there was a lot of sign out in the corn, but there was boot tracks. I knew people had probably been shed hunting there because it was right next to a parking area. And that's one thing you'll find if you're on public ground, if, if you're on a uh, food plot or any kind of field, that there's almost certain that there'll be shed hunters uh, looking if there's anyone around that, that does that. But uh, I was kind of working my way back into the timber because I, I had a hunch that there were bucks using this and, and maybe sheds had been picked up in the field. And um, I came across this stand of white pines, planted white pines up in Indiana. There, there's quite a bit of it in the national forest there. And, uh, and we had had a lot of snow and what I found was the droppings were super intense underneath these white pines when they were adjacent to crop fields where the deer were eating. So my, my guess is that those bucks, when the snow cover was heavy, there was, we got 12 to 18 inches over a couple weeks. Uh, my guess is that those bucks sought out those white pines because they were the only thing around that still had needles on the trees and they, they offer um, usually kind of more open ground underneath them and, and some amount of thermal cover. Well, what I noticed underneath these white ponds was that there was all this Christmas fern, and Christmas fern grows all across the southeast. Uh, it's most common fern, you know, I'd venture to say that you see out when you're out in the woods, and it remains green all through winter. What I noticed on the ground was there was this Christmas fern that was browsed pretty heavily, and uh, it was something I never noticed before, the, the deer eating. And, and I ended up finding a dead buck in the same patch of timber and uh, he'd already shed but he's laying there you know the, there was the bones and some of the, the stomach and intestines 
And so, again, being kind of nosy, I popped open the, the room and I, with a knife and got to looking through it. And, uh, and there was all this Christmas fern in his stomach. And so, you know, he was one of the deer in there that, um, that was eating Christmas fern. And that was, that was kind of eye-opening to me. And I, and, and I ended up actually finding a shed in that block of timber there um, in all that Christmas fern. So it, it paid off pretty quickly that day. And, uh, and I also say this, since then, um, this winter in North Carolina, I, I noticed that as well in some areas where deer were eating Christmas fern pretty heavily in winter. So, um, again, sometimes just kind of keeping your eyes open, you'll start to realize that the deer are keying in on something. And, and oftentimes, if you see the deer browse sign, if you see them eating something and there's fresh droppings there too, then you know it's really recent. And if that's happening during the, the shedding time frame, then, then you know you're in the money then because the deer are there at the right time of year. Yeah. So, Mariah, one thing I want to ask about is right now we're kind of in this early spring time frame uh, here in Alabama, at least. The woods are re- really starting to green up a little bit. Uh, there's stuff coming up all over the forest floors and, and there's more like young, tender green browse for the deer out there. And actually, these two sheds I found yesterday... Uh, there was a, I don't know what it was, uh, but there's some kind of grass coming up in this little open area of like super green, super tender grass. And both of the shed, one of the sheds was right smack in the middle of it. And then the other mm. shed was on the edge of it. Um, there's beds around the edges where it looks like nighttime beds or they're feeding at night there. Um, and just a, just a neat area, but they were, they were eating on that stuff. But my, my question is, uh, for these Southern states where we got these real late ruts, um, a lot of our deer in my area, we rut early December and they're just now shedding like really good. I mean, a lot of the bucks have dropped yeah. by now, but there's other places where, uh, they just, ha- they haven't shed yet and they're not going to shed for a little bit longer. And so you kind of start getting into this thing where you got green up happening as the sheds are dropping. So how much does that change the the food source equation that you're looking at, uh, where you're trying to key in on, on a food source, which is pretty limited late season. But then when that green up happens, there's a lot more food kind of growing on the landscape all at once. So how does that change things for you? Oh, it changes a lot. Yeah, you, I mean, you, you mentioned there probably the biggest challenge to shed hunting in the southeast. Um, and that is spring green up. Um, when I was in Mississippi, it was the same thing. that the, the sheds really didn't hit the ground heavy until about the first week of March. And by first week of March, things are starting to pop. Things are getting green. Um, and not only the food source issue, but you also run into the, as everything is growing, those sheds get covered up really quickly. And so there's definitely areas in the deep south where where bucks are shedding later. Um, you don't have that much time to shed hunt. Honestly, you're looking at a solid two or three weeks, and that's about it, where there's a, a good amount of fresh sheds on the ground, and there's open enough uh, cover on the ground at least throughout most of the woods that you could see sheds um, the spring green up part of the equation is also the, the really big challenge there and you're right I mean when, when when the woods come alive like they have now deer pretty much disperse you know I mean you, you think about it in like late summer deer are pretty well spread out across the landscape um, they're not concentrated like that late winter food source uh, like we've been talking about this whole time and I've definitely found that to be true in the southeast where bucks will start shedding. And right about the time they start shedding, if you're running cameras, and I, I saw this in Mississippi around Starkville, you're running cameras there. Right around the first week of March, all of the, the everything turns green and those bucks disappear. 
I mean, just about overnight, you know, and it, and it happens right at the peak time of shedding and it makes it really tough. And I, and honestly, I don't have an answer. I don't have a perfect answer to that other than, um, you try to pick up the ones that drop early where you're anticipating them, following the kind of strategy that, you know, I've been talking about where you scout and figure out where they are. And then besides that, I mean, it's, it's a matter of covering ground and, and hoping that you can find sheds and, you know, on, on the edges of riparian areas and some of these interior forest edges where deer naturally travel. But I mean, it, it gets a lot tougher when spring green up hits and, uh, and I don't think there's a perfect solution. And, um, I, I felt like that kind of happened to me this year, uh, up in Indiana. I don't know, you know, we just had a lot warmer winter up there. Um, I went back to Indiana and hunted for a week in December. The, the last week of archery season, I hunted up there. And, and that week when I, when I used to live up there, the deer were super concentrated on food. And as long as you found the food, you found the deer and you, you could pretty much sit and wait and you're, you're going to have multiple deer coming by you, likely multiple bucks. Um, you just wait on the deer you want. Well, this year I was up there and the multiflora rose all through the national forest was starting to pop. I mean, I had about an inch of fresh growth. And if they, you know, you know anything about deer and multiflora rose, they, they love that stuff, um, especially in that stage when it's early growth. And I felt like that just killed the hunting late season. Deer were just spread out all over the forest because there was food everywhere. And I went back and shed hunted Indiana first week of March, um, which is, is prime time up there this year. And I, I went up there and it was the same deal. Um, you know, there was still a lot of green in the woods from those warm weeks in December. And it, it really changed the shed hunting game. I believe, um, I was in some crop fields and I got some, some private permissions up there and some public and stuff and walking through plenty of food and just not seeing much deer sign because it was a mild winter and there's enough green in the woods deer didn't have to come out in the open cornfields to feed they just they didn't need to and and that's the challenge that we face in the southeast every year and uh it makes it really tough i, I i'm not, not gonna try to, to to paint any lighter i mean it makes it really tough <laughs> right I, I want you to uh, talk about and bring up uh one of your last big shed hunting trips when it was a multi-state trip it, i don't know if it was 2019 or 2020 when you did it um, and I'm sure you can refresh for me, but I think you went everywhere. You might've gone everywhere from out West to a bunch of the Midwest states, Southeastern states. And I mean, had a, a carload of sheds. Do you know the trip I'm talking about? Um, so I, we usually go out West every spring. We'll do a couple states out West. And, um, uh, back in, in 2018, I actually had a, a, a Midwestern kind of road trip where I, I, I was able to get Arkansas and Missouri and Illinois and, and um, I got Kentucky that year too. And that, that's, that might be what you're referring to. I, I got Tennessee as well that year. That, that was a big year. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that's the year. It was yeah, 2018. Cause I remember you, uh, so I, I, I don't know. Have you, let me ask, have you been back to Arkansas since then? Oh, uh, I, I went last year. Yeah. Okay. Cause I remember at one point you made a post at one point in the past, you know, scouting for those bachelor groups, uh, in Arkansas, but yeah, so talk a little bit about that 2018 trip. Cause I find it really interesting. Again, you're going out there, you know, kind of taking time away from, you know, all, all, you know, any other responsibilities you may have for ever how many days to go out there and truly, you know, cover a ton of mileage and, and bring home a carload of sheds. Talk a little bit about it. Kind of what kind of got you to that point and, and talk a little bit about the trip. Cause I just found it really interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, 
honestly, my biggest motivation for that particular trip, um, I had an appointment I had to be up in, in Indiana for, uh, and I, I was living in Mississippi at the time. So I, I had to make a drive. And so I ended up taking several days and, and just making it a fun trip, you know. My my motivation there though is that uh, myself and a buddy of mine, Kyle, we're 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 uh, we, we big shed hunting buddies and have been for years. And he goes with me on most of my trips. And and both of us have a goal, pretty much a life shed hunting goal, that to find a shed in every state. And so to 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 notch off a state, all you need to do is find a shed in a state. And uh, so it can be pretty um, impactful if you're able to to get a shed in one state, and then that's pretty much all you need, and you move on. So um, I really wasn't trying to kill it, and I didn't. I, I I wouldn't say I found a ton of sheds. I had a pretty good day in Arkansas to start off that trip. I, I ended up working that day and drove over to Arkansas, and it was like one of my best walks ever. In 30 minutes or so, I found like six sheds, and, and one of them was a, a really nice set stacked on top of each other. And it, it was just one of those days that, you know, I'll remember forever. Um, then the next day, uh, so I, I shed hunted th that day. Um, and then I drove up to Missouri that night and slept in the car at a WMA. And, and then I shed hunted Missouri, uh, for an hour or so that morning, just long enough to find a shed. Then I took off for Illinois and I ended up walking, um, all day in Illinois and I finally found a really, really chalky old four point. I mean, it was rough and chewed all the pieces, but that's all I needed <laughs> for Illinois. And then, then the next day I went to Indiana. Um, but I mean, the, the motivator of that trip was I was trying to get those states. I'd never found one in Illinois or, or Missouri. Uh, and, I, and I got Arkansas that year. And so I was just trying to, to knock those off the list. And, and that's pretty much what that trip's purpose was to me. Um, and then I, you know, the other side of it is I, I love walking through the woods and learning the landscape and jumping from state to state like that. Uh, it gives me a really, I think a really cool perspective just to be able to have spent a little time boots on the ground and, and see what, what it's all about out there and, and just see the, the different challenges in, in different states. Um, but yeah, no, that, that was what that trip was. And, uh, I, I forget how many I found it was probably like 10 or 10 or 12 at most during that trip, but it was a lot of fun. I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great when you can kind of unplug and spend time outdoors and when you're shed hunting, I mean, it's just not another care in the world. Yeah. It's like shed hunting is one of those things. Like you've got the guys either like yourself, who's, you know, extremely hardcore in it. And you've got the guys that are, I guess like a, um, uh, opportunistic shed hunter as in, They'll go out there and look. They'll you know find a bird. You know, they'll find a you know set of antlers or something like that. You know while maybe doing some postseason scouting or while maybe scouting for turkeys. And you got the guy like me, which if I find a shed, it's because I'm out there doing something else. I'm like, oh, there's an antler. Great, pick it up <laughs> and then run off with it. Yeah. Um. But it brings up one other question I've got. Out of all the states that you've you know shed hunted, what states have you knocked off so far when it came to finding antlers in? Oh, so so what states have I found one in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your what's your list so far that, that you've knocked out? Oh, okay. I'll try to I'll try to do this in my head. Um, I'll start I'll start with the West because I we've been kind of chilling away at that. So California, Nevada, um, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and I and that's my my Western states right now. And then. Um, Arkansas, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, 
Kentucky, Indiana, uh, Missouri, Illinois, Wisconsin, and let's see, Maryland, Delaware. Those are the ones that come to my mind right away. And if I'm missing anything, it can't be that important. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing. If you need to check Alabama off the list, Andrew's got a spot that every time he's gone in there, not, not the oh, ones dude. where he found these antlers, but he's got one spot in, on a piece of public land in Alabama that every time he goes in there, he finds one or two, I mean, nice, at least a Big side. Sheds. Yeah, nice sides. A very nice size. And it's funny. It's a place we've never even deer hunted. <laughs> It's, yeah. open, it's open for deer hunting. We just, I think we've hunted it once or twice, maybe, like in, yeah. that, in that parcel. So, Yeah, Kyle well, hunted like it last year. Good late year. season place. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely it is. Um, so, Mariah, uh, kind of getting close to the end here, I want to ask you about what you did in college for your research because it's pretty interesting, and especially I, I love it when guys like yourself uh, are involved with you know research and deer biology because you look at things not only from like a scientific standpoint, but also from the standpoint of you're a hunter and you, you're always trying to apply this stuff to your hunting. And uh, you you had a research project that had to do with red oak acorns. And so can you just kind of dive into that and, and talk about a little bit about your research and kind of some interesting things that you found with that? Yeah, for sure. I It was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. And um First off, you know, being able to do most of the, the work for at least the field portion you know, out in the woods, of course, was fun. And for so for that project, just to kind of lay it up, I, I was looking at red oak acorns or red, red oak trees. And as part of this research question, I needed to measure the response to um, acorns being on the ground. And I needed to measure the response by deer. So the way we did that, I, I took 50 oak trees spread out randomly across the, this real large forest. I took 50 of those, and on, with half of those trees, I didn't do anything except set up a trail camera under it um, so that I would be able to get like a base rate of how many deer were walking past these trees. And so, you know, this is done randomly across 25 trees. It, it, it ends up evening out pretty random just the number of deer, you know, based on there might be a trail there or there isn't uh, the, the number of deer that pass per week. And that was kind of my base rate. Then with the other 25 trees, and, and by the way, this year there, there wasn't much at all for mass production underneath these oak trees. So those first 25 trees, there, was, there wasn't food for those deer there, anything special. The other 25 trees, I added acorns too. So I, I picked up acorns, um, mostly on Mississippi State's campus and around Starkville there. I picked up um, acorns. I, I, I pick up th- pick up three thousand for each tree, so that came to seventy five thousand acorns, which is it, to, to 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 be able to to put that to anything that we can understand. It's like I think it was between ten and twelve like burlap sacks full of, of acorns, essentially. Um, so I hauled those up to North Mississippi, where my study site was. And I put those those out, just distributed them like they would fall off of a tree, just randomly out in the area underneath the drip line of the tree, um, underneath the other 25 trees. So I ended up having 25 with acorns and 25 without. And I monitored those trees with acorns uh, with cameras as well. And so I was able to compare uh, the deer use as a result of acorns being there. And the big takeaway for me as, as a hunter, and this is the thing that I, you know, one of the finds of the research. Um, that that I've applied and I've, I'm still working to efficiently apply in my hunting and shed hunting. Um, but this was in Mississippi, I'll point out, because uh, that's important to this timing. On the study site, 
the peak rut is around the first week of December. And those acorns hit the ground first week of November, which is pretty typical for red oaks in that part of Mississippi. And deer use of those acorn trees increased gradually after those acorns hit the ground. Um, so there was like a, maybe a two or three times increase in deer use of trees during the month of November and December. But then when January hit, about mid to late January and into the first week of February, I mean, the deer use under those trees just exploded. I mean, they were hammering those acorns. And <clears throat> it was a real eye-opening to me as a hunter that, first off, they didn't just devour those acorns when they first hit the ground. So they obviously were eating something else, and they switched to those acorns when the time was right for them and when that, that, those nutrients were, were needed by them. And, and it was so late in the season there, it was right at the tail end of deer season in Mississippi. Um, and it was so late in the season that it, it, you know, it lines up perfect for some late season hunting. Uh, but, but again, the, the, the big takeaway being most folks think about hunting acorns. This is how, you know, I, I came to believe you should hunt acorns from all the, the outdoor reading and TV and all this. You hunt acorns when they're dropping, and then when that's done, you move on. Um, but I, I started to realize, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I start, should start looking at red oaks after uh, they've been on the ground for a while. And um, so that was in the that was in 2017 2018 i wrapped up that research um and that was like that was my big takeaway and, and as a deer hunter you know that was kind of my big aha you know maybe maybe red oaks and acorns in general um are worth more than, than to, to deer hunting than what we give them credit for and uh fall of 20 uh 2020 up in um indiana i was able to apply that and i ended up actually killing my buck that year uh, it was like december 15th or something a full month after the peak of the rut uh killed him on a on a red oak ridge um after i'd scattered it out and passed several other deer does and stuff up there and they, they were hammering acorns up there so that was my kind of proof of concept for hunting and again it's a subject i'm, I'm working on applying more in the future because you can't just apply it across the the board it's not that red oaks are the end-all be-all and this is what we need to hunt it's it's just another thing to kind of keep your eyes open for and if you see a lot of red oaks on the ground um you know in in maybe october november just i i just take note and i check back with with those acorns every couple weeks or so um because sooner or later deer are going to come to eat them if there's many deer in the area and uh it's just all about the timing and you know that was that was really my big takeaway from my from that research project and, and one i thoroughly enjoyed yeah that's super interesting it kind of gets back to you know some of these guys that we've interviewed in the past one that comes to mind is richard fought and just finding that that he hunts an area with a ton of red oaks in, in eastern arkansas and it's one of those things that you know it's not about which tree is dropping but it's about which tree does the deer want to get on at that time of the year and he talks about having tremendous success uh, in some of these areas going into December and late December in Arkansas in an area that has a you know pretty early rut. Uh, I mean, early in standpoint compared to us down here in Alabama where we're at, where it's you know early mid uh, December. So um, that that's super interesting, kind of see how that kind of played out and how you've kind of been able to take that you know with a grain of salt to other places because again it. it it's, I think it's all relative to where you're at. Like I, I can think of, uh, on our family farm in Bibb County, Alabama, which is central Alabama, 
there's one huge scarlet red oak. Uh, we actually talked about in our one of our it might have been last week's episode. Yeah, it was last week's episode of the podcast with my uncle. And it's a tree that when that tree's dropping, those deer are under that tree. Um, and so pretty much they're all gone. It's a huge, giant, giant scarlet red oak. And uh, but it's just different. And but it's an area that there's not many of those, and there's a, quite a few white oaks on the property. But for some, for some reason, when that tree drops, like it just draws a ton of deer there. It's that one isolated, you know, red oak. Um, but again, you find an area that's a huge swath of red oaks and like some of these bigger river bottoms and, and kind of creek systems and stuff, or, uh, you know, big ridge systems that, that could be a huge factor. Like you say, and like, they're just leaving acorns to lay and they come check those out, you know, late into the season and see how that, you know, that use is. And also might be a great place for as well to put trail cameras on kind of like what you're doing with your study. Just on the application, like, hey, you know, I know there's a big group of, you know, red oaks up on this one ridge. Let's go put some, you know, cameras out on them, you know, right after the rut and see how, especially if you had a cell camera, see how that use, you know, changes. And maybe you can get a pattern on a buck to go in there and, you know, have some success. So that, that's super interesting. Yeah, I think it's a testament, again, to how much deer habits change throughout the season. And that's something I've really come to appreciate in the last couple of years, how, um, you really just have to adapt pretty much weekly uh, what deer are doing and where they're eating. And that's just another tool to have in the tool bag, um, you know, and, and uh, you just make sure you're aware of it and, and, and keep your eyes open. And, and it can, it can uh, be one of those things one year that ends up bringing you success. And it's, um, you know, it, I think we all, you know, we've all got a lot we can learn about deer behavior, just mainly because this is the one thing I love about deer. And this is what this is probably what makes me such a what what gives me such an appreciation for the animals is that uh, they're all they're all unique and so uh, we can draw some inferences and some generalities on what they do and then one will do something completely crazy different and uh, we don't know you know it's just like well we can't explain it but that's just that's just what they that deer did or that's what the deer do here um, and I just love it because it kind of keeps you on your toes and there's always something to learn you know and kind of to your point about that scarlet oak you were just talking about um last year i was in mississippi in 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 uh right at the beginning of november when the white oaks are dropping heavy down there swamp chestnut oaks i was having a tough time deer were not i just couldn't find a, a swamp chestnut or a white oak where there were deer on it and uh ended up just a uh, 100 200 yards away i found a cherry bark oak which of course is another red oak dropping and the deer were tearing it up. The first evening I sat it, I, I shot a buck. And, uh, you know, traditional hunting wisdom would have said, well, don't pay attention to the red oaks. Uh, deer like white oaks more. But they were walking right past the swamp chestnuts and white oaks for that tree. Can't explain it, and I don't need to. But it's, you know, it's, I just think it, it's fun to learn. Um, and the second I think I know something, they prove me wrong. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one thing that I think, I've come to appreciate, especially, you know, us doing this podcast for so long and talking to so many different individuals from across the country is, you know, what it, what we may see as talking about we, I'm going to say myself, what I may see is like, oh, this is the truth, man, where I'm here in central Alabama. You go up to Tennessee or you go over to Mississippi or Georgia or just a couple of hours outside of like central Alabama. And it could be completely different from what people are seeing there and experiencing. So that's, yeah, like you said, that's the interesting thing about deer and deer hunting is, they are so different. Like there's no one or um, what's the right word here? One what's size fits all. One, well, yeah, that's, that's probably, that was another thing I was thinking about. Yeah. One size fits all kind of a uh, format for, you know, what deer are going to be going to during certain times of the season, how they're going to be using the land and everything else. They're all very different. 
and the different herds are so different too. So yeah, that's one cool thing. I know you can appreciate this too, Mariah, is when you hunt a bunch of different states, to, to me, you get a better appreciation for whitetails because you can truly see them act differently in different areas and how they use that landscape completely different from one region to another region. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, and that's the cool thing too. You spend time in different areas. That, a couple takeaways. One, you know, one of my biggest ones is that you think you know something one one place, you go elsewhere, just like you're saying, it's completely different. Um, and the other the other thing is it doesn't matter where you're at. Deer are hard to hunt. They're hard to kill. And, and <laughs> you know, I grew up in a southeastern state where everyone said, oh, the Midwest has it so easy and this, that, and the other. Uh, and I've shed hunted, you know, a couple, I shed hunt a whole season in Indiana and, and deer hunt a whole season up there and, and been in some, hunted some of these other places and shed hunted a lot of them. I wouldn't say anyone's got it super easy. And, and that's one thing I, I'll say, especially, you know, with shed hunting, um, in the Southeast, we were talking about the challenges and don't get me wrong. There's a lot of them. I, there's a lot of challenges to shed hunting in the Southeast, but it can be done just as, just the same as it can be done anywhere else. And, uh, you know, to say anything else would, would be to, to be making an excuse. I mean, heard people say that the squirrels chew them all up in the south. You can't find them. And I found plenty of two, three-year-old sheds that, that aren't even touched. You know, it, it's not the squirrels. It's just it's just tough, but it's tough everywhere. And honestly, that's the fun about it, you know. And and that's the one thing I've, I've just, just from being in different places, come to really respect about deer is that whether it's shed hunting or deer hunting, it's a challenge. And quite frankly, I wouldn't want to do if it wasn't. And uh, it doesn't matter where you're at; it's still a challenge. And to uh, to say it isn't elsewhere is, is to kind of put down on, on other people's way of doing things. And and I don't think that's really fair. It's it's pretty tough to do wherever you're at. And um, there, there's always some kind of curveball they'll throw to you. It doesn't matter if it's a you know an Indiana corn-fed deer or if it's some cagey deer down in the in the longleaf pines. Like they're they're same animal and they adapt and man they, they do some crazy things wherever they're at awesome well listen we appreciate you coming on mariah it's been an interesting episode and kind of hear about your passion and everything and again you know meet somebody that's from the southeast that actually does some traveling when it comes to finding some sheds that's that is pretty interesting because uh, i think when most people think of shed hunting they think of like oh, i'm just gonna do it my local you know at the back 40 my local wma or whatever they're doing so it's, it's great to kind of hear somebody that's got a lot of experience and done it in a bunch of different states but mariah Appreciate you coming on the podcast. Do you have uh, if he, well? Let me ask if anybody has any questions to maybe reach out to you about any of that research that you did uh, back at Mississippi State or anything else that you're working on currently. Uh, how would somebody maybe get in touch with you or asking you be able to reach out to you asking you any kind of specific questions for that? Um, yeah, they they could reach out to me through my Instagram account. That's really the probably the most consistent best way to get a hold of me. I don't really do Facebook. Um, and that my username is Mariah, M O R I A H, biologist. Uh, just all all together uh, as one. Um, so that's my handle on there. And, and yeah, if, if anyone has any questions or comments or or whatnot, I'd I'd love to hear from and talk to him. I, I love talking shed hunting or deer or deer research or hunting or plants or anything like that. So they'd be welcome to reach out. That's a good place to do it. Awesome, Mariah. Well, thank you again for coming on. And hey, best of luck to you for the rest of your shed season. It's cl- quickly coming to a wrap. And I know you're going to be turkey hunting very soon. Well, I appreciate it, guys. It was fun to, to be on. And I wish y'all luck in the, the turkey woods because I think that's uh, green upcoming and where we're 
pretty much where we're at now. So shed season definitely slowing down for me as well, and we'll be looking for the birds. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year, and guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.